oh, I don't know, it might have been 10 years ago, but I can't keep track of time anymore. It could have been five years ago. might have been 15. That's what happens when you get older. It's like, when was that? But I was in a, I was in a hotel lobby, a crowded hotel lobby. And as I was thinking of this illustration, and I thought, I've never had this thought before in my life. Oh, how great would it be to be in a crowded hotel lobby? I'm an introvert, so I just I like space. But I've, even I've gotten to the point of where I just want to be hugging people. I just want to be near people. I just want to be packed into a hotel lobby. I was at a pastor's conference. There were thousands of us in some city. I don't know where it was. And... Um, we had taken over all the local hotels, and this was a small lobby, and there must have been 50 of us jammed in there. And I, I, if memory serves, it was following sort of the opening you know, stuff that evening. It was later at night. We were all heading back to our hotels. And it was buzzing and talking and connecting and reconnecting with people I hadn't seen for a while. And then there was this guy over by the vending machine who had clearly already been to his room because he was in a, a kind of an old white T-shirt that he clearly had been wearing all day, and he had sort of cut-off sweats and no shoes. And he's pounding on the vending machine with both hands, and he's yelling at it. Where's my drink? What? You, you've stolen my dollar. He's pounding on the machine. It's rocking. And it was so awkward that no one was really addressing it. One of those situations where like, oh my gosh, what's that guy doing? And it was the second time that he said, you've taken my dollar that it registered to me because I had just gotten a drink out of that same machine. And it was a dollar and a quarter. And I still had change in my pocket. So I walked up there and I said, you okay? And he's like, no, blah. And I said, I you put a dollar in there? He's like, yes. I think, I think it's a dollar and a quarter. So I slipped another dollar and a quarter. I put a quarter in there, and boop, the drink came out, and he took it, and he kind of rushed off. <clears throat> the next morning, he was the keynote speaker. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Ten years later, he had built one of the largest churches in America. He was on top of the world as far as church growth and big-name big pastors and all that. And then just a few years ago, the wheels came off. Addiction, infidelity, crashed, burned, out. Now, I don't know what happened between the vending machine and that 12, 13 years. It's, it's beyond me to, to judge what would happen. But I will say this in, in sort of generic form. <clears throat> when we see the most basic and simple breakdowns happening in our life, or, or rather, if we don't see them, we don't address them, they have a tendency, more often than not, to grow doesn't get better. It gets worse when it doesn't get attended to. And it wrecks our heart, wrecks our own heart, wrecks our life, and can wreck the lives of, of, of all those that are near us. 
There's some very simple, basic things that we, and, and when I say we, the, the Christian church, I don't know where you are in your faith journey. It's, it's very likely that you have a faith. Um, those that don't, <laughs> like many of us that do, aren't really attending church right now. This is not, you know, you guys are, you guys are sitting in sort of the minority group. But I suspect many of you have a faith, and, and if you do, there are some very basic, simple elements of the Christian faith that if we don't pay attention to, if we don't, if we don't focus on and make sure those are right, the wheels come off of our life and our faith and, 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 and the church, as it were, and we can't be who God needs us to be in the world. And God needs his church to be healthy and well in this world. The healthy church is the solution that God has given this world to find him. God has entrusted the finding of his son, to the testimony of the church and the move of the Spirit. The world needs light. The world needs salt. The world needs Jesus. And in our lifetime, in my lifetime, I haven't seen a time when that is more evident. It's always been true. Sometimes it is far more evident than other times. And if we gravitate away from the basic elements, the basic character, and the simple power of the gospel, we fail to be the church that God needs us to be. I want to talk about some of those basics this morning, or at least get started in it. We're also starting a study, a church-wide study called Rooted. Just dealing with the same things. It's a very basic, simple, immersive, multifaceted study that just locks us in on what is the Christian church supposed to be. When I look around the world, <laughs> because that's what I can do. I'm sitting in my house. I can look around the entire world. When I, when I look out in my corners of the world. When I, when, I, when I look through the lens of social media or, or in, into the news, into local scene, into, even into, into just personal conversations, it seems that in many ways we've gravitated away from what it is to be a Christian. I think there's a, there's a case to be made that the, the Christian church is not distinctly different than the rest of the world right now. The way we have conversations is the same. The way we argue is the same. The way we differ is the same. The solutions that we have for the problems of the world are the same. The way we pursue those solutions are the same. But there is certainly to be something 
radically different about how the church engages the world and the problems of the world. And I don't personally see that as distinctly different as it should be. And maybe it's because we've just forgotten some of the basics. And now is as good a time as any to look back into that. So we'll do it. First, let me say welcome. I'm glad to see you here. Thank you for being a part of this. If you're in this room, you need to keep wearing a mask, right? You need to keep getting your temperature taken at the door. Afterwards, you're not going to be able to talk to anybody. I'm going to kick you right out the door so you can get some fresh air. Lots of rules to jump through, but we're glad you're here. If you're not here, I'm glad you're here via technology. I really am. And I want you to know something. No matter where you are, in central Ohio, because we're kind of everywhere. We've got folks in Hilliard and Westerville and Worthington and Powell and Plain City, Marysville, Worthington, out of state and a few other countries. <laughs> Maybe that's why they were singing in Spanish this morning. I don't know what, but wherever you are, I'm thankful that you're engaged, how you can be engaged. And wherever you are, I want you to know you are a vibrant part of this church. The basics of what church is can be adopted and lived out and embraced anywhere, anytime, through any means of connection. The church is very dispersed right now very decentralized, scattered, if you will, but it is still the church. Thank you for your commitment to being connected however you can. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read about 20 verses. Try to hang with me on this. It's hard to listen to someone read for any length of time. But it's important for you to capture this one little sentiment here. And then we're going to talk about four basic elements of the church, the Christian movement, if you will. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through about 21 or 22 or 23, something like that. What's going on here is uh, the Acts is a narrative of the first century church, of the first church, really. Right? Jesus had, had arrived. He had lived. He had uh, been crucified, dead, buried, rose again to new life, ascended into heaven. And as he was doing that, he launched the church. And in the book of Acts, preserved over centuries and millennia, we have a narrative of this first church, which gives us, in many cases, the very best picture of the basics of church. At this particular moment in time, the apostles are now leading the church. A new leader named Stephen has been executed, stoned, because of his faith in Jesus. And we pick it up there. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, the day that Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Now, side note, you might know this. The, who was leading that persecution was Saul, soon to be 
Paul, who ends up being one of the greatest thinkers, one of the greatest practitioners, one of the greatest missionaries ever. But at this particular time, he is leading the persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And it says, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in this city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You've no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin." Like I said, we we get a really good picture of the first century church in these short passages. We see the character of the church, and we see the power of the church. Basic message and basic distortions of the message is what I want to talk about today. There's four things that make up the church, at least what we see in this text. The church is organic. It's urban. It's extremely helpful. And it's gospel-centric. Today I'm going to talk about what it means to be organic and what it means to be gospel-centric. In verse 14 it says, They accepted 
the word of God. And what does that mean? They accepted the word of God. Does that mean they accepted the Bible? We, we refer to the Bible as the word of God. Did Philip take and, and deliver the Bible to them? He did not. When the word of God in the Gospels and in the book of Acts doesn't refer necessarily to the written word of God. The word of God that Philip reported, the word of God that Philip put out there was the narrative, the facts, the actualities, the story, if you will, of the Son of God coming to earth. The God himself coming to earth in the flesh. This is the word of God. It wasn't complicated, really. It was profound, but not complicated. When they said they shared the word of God, this was normal people like you and me saying astonishing things like this. God showed up in the flesh over there in Bethlehem. And he grew up and he, and he lived in Jerusalem. And this God in the flesh proved he was God in the flesh by exhibiting uncharacteristic, inexplicable power. They would say things like, he, he made dead people live. He made lame people walk. He made blind people from birth to see. He could stand up and whisper and the storms would well, he made very clear that he was, in fact, the Son of God by his incredible power. But he also showed incredible compassion. He touched people and talked to people and cared for people that had formerly been entirely marginalized. He touched people you shouldn't touch. He kissed people you shouldn't kiss. He ate lunch with people you shouldn't eat lunch with. He showed compassion like nobody else. And then he was crucified. But then he came out of the grave. This is what they would say. They went all to their different places and they said these things. Do you know how to say these things? We do. But we tend to overcomplicate it. We get caught up in a whole bunch of other stuff. Sometimes things that are hard to explain, complicated to explain, different things that are in the scriptures that we spend our lives trying to understand. But the basic message of the gospel is God showed up in human form demonstrated power beyond explanation, compassion like none other, was dead, buried, crucified, raised from the dead, and explained that that death was the forgiveness of all mankind to be reconciled to God. That anybody who believed in him and confessed it with their mouth would receive eternal life beginning now and going on forever. When Philip said those words, when Philip told that story, when he shared the word of God, Samaria believed it. <laughs> what does that mean to believe that? What does it mean to get 
baptized as a result of hearing that? Well, what it means is you've recognized that the only way to enjoy, to to have, to, to apprehend life The only way to to have peace and contentment and assurance and forgiveness. It is to believe that the, the only way to find a solution for all that ails the world is to give up on all the other solutions except for him. To be baptized in the name of Jesus, is to say, I'm looking nowhere else for life. I'm looking nowhere else for solutions. I'm looking nowhere else for peace or contentment or wholeness. They believed. And they showed it publicly. They went down into water, whatever water they could find, and they essentially said, I'm dying to all that this world has offered me formally, everything that I've pursued, everything that I've acquired. I'm giving it all up, and I'm trusting only in this man who proved himself to be the Son of God. Jumping a little ahead, when Simon wanted what was being offered, he offered to buy it. And we see the other critical part of the gospel message, the word of God. What did did Philip say? Or what did Peter say, rather? You can't buy the gift of God. It's a gift. This is as beyond comprehension as the power and the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. That you can't do anything to earn it. It's a gift from God. The solution to life is something that is simply received, believed, and confessed. It's a gift. Both Paul and John and all the apostles. Communicate this in different ways. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus was who he said he was, he did what he said it was going to be done, you're saved. It's a big thing. Think about this. Big thing to repudiate all the other solutions of life. It's a big thing to give up all the things that are currently giving you some semblance of comfort or peace or promising to. That's a big deal. But that's the nature of Christianity. Let me talk quickly about the two or three things that are the easiest, maybe, maybe not easiest isn't the right word, are, are, the, are the most natural distortions of the gospel. This is where everybody, Christians, well, Christians, 
of all sorts, shapes and sizes, go awry the quickest when it comes to their faith. Simon shows us. <laughs> hey, I'd like to give you some money to buy this so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. The first place we very quickly go awry in our faith, where the church goes sideways, is when we start to leverage Jesus for our own personal benefit. Now, you got to think about this. This gets pretty personal. How often do you leverage Jesus for what you want? How often do you pray to Jesus to get what you want? (laughs) For most of us, that's all we pray about. Here's what I need from you. Here's why I believe in you, right? That's not, we're not saying that, but essentially we're saying, I believe in you to give me what I want. I believe in you to put the right candidate in the seat. I, I believe in you to secure my health. I, I believe in you to repair my marriage. I believe in you to bring success to my business or my team. I believe in you to reach my goals or achieve my dreams. That seems like very normal prayers, do they not? They're not godly prayers. Peter threw this right back in Simon's face. Jesus isn't here for you to discover and to maximize your life. But this is what we do. Jesus can't be bought. He can't be leveraged. We have to be super careful about that. When our faith becomes about our own personal agendas or what's important to us, we've started to gravitate away from the basic Christian message. A number, he he offers them this money. He says, he, I think if I, said, if I made the first one, we, we leverage God for our own personal needs. The other thing we do is it's very similar. We, we lower Jesus into our own worldly systems. Hey, come into my economy where we exchange goods through money, and I'd like to get you involved in that, Jesus. When we start co-opting Jesus for the spaces where we believe goodness and life comes from, we've started to gravitate away. We try to invite Jesus in to create a better economy, to create better political means, to create better activism, to, be, to have bigger followings and, and more power. We're, we're, we're saying, Jesus, come into these systems, my systems. It's reputed. You, you can't buy Jesus in. We tend to leverage Jesus for our own personal means. We tend to lower him into our worldly systems and our worldly economics and our worldly solutions. 
Jesus, come be on my team. These first converts to faith were from Samaria. If you've read your Bible, you understand that the people of God were forbidden to even go into Samaria. Never talk to a Samaritan. And if you touch one, (laughs) you're the worst. And they are trusting in Jesus, accepting the word of God, and are now part of the same church. They are now, Samaritans are now the people of God. Imagine what that church meeting is like. Do you think they believed the same things, ate the same things, valued the same things, had the same code of morality? No. Maybe the most damaging thing that happens within the church, if the first one is we leverage God for our personal needs, and the second one is we lower God into our worldly systems and solutions, the third one is we let anything other than Jesus divide us. You know what the biggest problem for Christianity is in today's world? It's not the rejection of Christianity by the world. It is the disunity of the church itself. The first problem that the church has to solve before we can be any light and salt to the rest of the world is figure out how to be unified and together and to love one another. No matter how different we are, Christians are as divided as anybody else in the world. And we are no testimony to the world if we can't love one another. Despite our differences, despite our deeply held values, Jesus said, They will know you are my disciples by your love. And who is he talking to? At that particular time, he's talking to all all Jews in Jerusalem. But eventually that message went to the Gentiles, the Samaritans, all those that are different. Think about the very first churches that were organized in all of these different cities and the eclectic nature of those groups of people and how different they were and how quickly they tried to change one another into something other than what they were. Now, there is a transformative process. If we're doing this right, we're all growing into greater maturity and becoming more like Christ-like. In the meantime, we aren't very Christ-like. We won't arrive there in this time, in this space, in this earth, in this world. (laughs) The most disturbing thing for me about the pandemic is not the isolation. It's not even the loss of life, as sad as those things are. It is the division in the church. Breaks my heart. And it's because we have co-opted Jesus and tried to leverage Jesus for what we think is important. 
so we connect Jesus to our cause, to our values, to our dreams. We've got to find a way. We've got to com- be committed to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ no matter what. No matter what. We've got to stay together. I was talking to a peer of mine, friend, black man with a family about the same age as mine, a ministry guy, pastor, and he was telling me about what he wants to do downtown, some ministry that he wants to work on and get others involved in. And he explained it to me, and I said, I don't really agree with that approach, (laughs) like, at all. I don't think it works. I think you're actually going to be hurting the people you're trying to help. He's like, huh, I understand that. So we talked a little bit longer, and uh, we got to the end of the conversation, and I said, so how can I help you with your thing you want to do? I'd love to help you with that. And he said, wait, did I misunderstand you? I thought earlier in the conversation you said you didn't agree at all with what I was going to do. I said, I don't. I couldn't agree any, I couldn't disagree anymore. You're going to, but you're going to help me. Absolutely. Why? Because you're my friend. Because Jesus is your savior and in good conscience, you're following him. I believe you are following him. So I'll help you. <laughs> he was like, what? And he said, what if people find out you're helping me? What if your friends and your groups of people agree with you and they find out you're helping me? I said, well, that's, that's great. We'll find out if they're Christian or not. I will gladly stand up and say, I'm helping my brother do what God has called him to do, even though I disagree with it. Because I love him. I appreciate him. And I might be wrong. We got to believe in one another. We got to leave room for the possibility that I don't know it all. My perspective might be a little skewed, might be a little biased. We got to stay together. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It is important for us to remember it's not ultimately what Jesus does for us, even though he does a lot for us. It's not ultimately about what Jesus does through us, 
It's not about ultimately about what I can accomplish in this world with Jesus' help. We have to understand that the Christian faith is about embracing Jesus. Nothing else. And staying together while we do it. Allowing him to transform us and change us. And through our changed lives and our commitment to Christ alone, we get what the world can never offer. In the midst of the chaos, this is the beauty of Jesus in our life, is in the midst of stuff not getting fixed. Because it's a sad reality. This world ain't getting fixed. <laughs> it ain't. We're working on stuff. We're trying, to, we're trying to solve poverty, hunger, racism, economic inequality, all sorts of stuff. And we should. And we, we may make progress. It ain't getting fixed. The only thing that's bringing any kind of peace, any kind of contentment, any kind of unity, any kind of love, any kind of togetherness is just how Jesus changes you. And then in the midst of all the brokenness, we're okay. Because God is in control. Jesus is more powerful, more compassionate, more forgiving. We can go on in this world no matter what happens, no matter what kinds of wrong turns are taken, no matter how bad things get, we can be at peace because we know God is in control and he is working things in the direction of good. Not necessarily even in our lifetime, but he's in charge. Oh, I'm going to use what we saw this week, which I don't want to ever see again. That kind of mess, riots in the Capitol, to give you a little bit of practical application on these issues. What we saw this week made some things clear. We're a mess. Fear is rampant. Conspiracy theories and ecstatic personalities are looked to as more powerful than truth and law and decency and common sense. Bad character is tolerated for personal gain. Those in seats of power or at the center of the public discourse are perpetuating problems. And we're all failing to see the depth of the corruption in our heart. In our heart, the problems are not out there. They're in here. In our national heart and in our personal hearts. Nothing's going to fix this stuff. Guns aren't going to fix it. Laws aren't going to fix it. Even decency's not going to fix it. What's going to fix it is Jesus alive in the hearts of people. Transforming them, humbling them. 
The world has a sinful heart problem. And for years, decades, we've been pseudo-successful at covering over that corruption. But the depth of corruption and decay is finally showing itself more fully. And we know, the Christian church knows, only Jesus provides the sort of humility and clarity that fully exposes our sin. Our sin is in the only one who can solve it. The solution to sin is in the personal redemption of every single heart and reconciliation to God and Jesus. It's the only thing that solves it. So what do you do in the meantime? What does the Christian do? I'll give you three things, and I'll knock it off. Look in the mirror. Start by looking in the mirror. Admit your own sin, your own selfish motives, your own unloving attitudes, your own imbalanced commitment to worldly solutions, your unwillingness to admit the truth. Look in the mirror. Live by faith. No, save that number three. Two, always acknowledge what's true. Always acknowledge what's true. As our public officials and national press twist the truth to secure their own place of power, Christians must take the risk of loss to be honest. Don't say one thing in private and something else in public. Tell the truth. Live in the reality. The pandemic is real. Joe Biden is president. People are suffering injustice. My perspective is warped. Live in the truth. It's true. Things are true that we don't like. And third, live by faith rather than fear. Relinquish your fear of losing control to the one who is in control. Remind your soul that God establishes authorities and commands us to respect them, that all things will succumb to his way in the end. You don't have to win at all costs. You, don't, you can agree to disagree. It's not the end of the world if you show compassion, speak well of, or offer help to those who oppose you. Your faith makes you free to yield and to love and to care for anybody and everybody because, again, faith recognizes God is in control. Keep relying on Jesus. Keep living by faith. Keep telling people what you know about Jesus and his story. Allow God to change you. Trust him that he's up to good. Don't leverage him for your own personal stuff. Don't try to co-opt him into your systems and your solutions. And by all means, choose your Christian brother or sister over the issue. Don't let anything of this world divide you from one another. Our greatest testimony is staying together and trusting God over all other things. Father, it is our deepest prayer to love you well, to trust you only, to make a difference in this world primarily by hanging on to your son. We tell you again as a church gathered 
dispersed, physically together, technologically together. We tell you as a church, God, we are committed to you. And we're trusting you in the midst of all the chaos. God, we pray for the hearts of those that are leading our country. We pray for the hearts of those that are leading subgroups of different sorts and types, God, that they would discover sinfulness in their own heart, the blindness in their eyes, the darkness, and come to you. Find peace, contentment, allows them to let go their power, their fear. Help us to stay together, to love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.